Hi friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank you for choosing to listen to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God. We'll soon be celebrating 500,000 downloads since launch and winning a Zenga prize for podcast journalism. If you're enjoying the series and you'd like to help me reach even more people with thinking faith, can I encourage you to support this podcast? Becoming a silver supporter means you get early access to episodes and bonus content, Gold supporters also get signed books and a monthly catch-up with me on Zoom, if you'd like it. The links to support are with the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hey everybody, uh, here I am at the metro station at Shady Grove and I'm about to take the train into D.C. for the Reason Rally. We're here! God-free lifestyle, atheists, agnostics, and secular humanists from across the country convene on the National Mall. One, two, three. What about science? One, two, three. And what about reason? One, two, three. We are the hardliners. Some call us extremists, but that's just because... We're extremely right. I, uh, I have two proofs uh, for not believing God. First of all, God, if you're there, we're here in Washington. Come down now. The Earth is over four billion years old. Evolution is literally a fact of life. From now on, if they insult us, they will deal with us. On the 24th of March 2012, an estimated 20 to 30,000 people gathered for the Reason Rally on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., a day described as Woodstock for atheists. The lineup included musicians, activists, and entertainers such as Eddie Izzard, Tim Minchin, Bill Maher, and Penn Gillette. It also included popular scientists being welcomed to the stage like rock stars. Folks! Professor Richard Dawkins. But biologist Richard Dawkins went further than merely extolling the virtues of reason in his main stage address. Mock them, ridicule them. In public. Don't fall for the convention that we're all too polite to talk about religion. Religion is not off the table. Religion is not off limits. Religion makes specific claims about the universe which need to be substantiated and need to be challenged and, if necessary, need to be ridiculed with contempt. The Reason Rally represented the high watermark of a movement that has come to be known as New Atheism. I'm Justin Briley, and for over a decade and a half, I've been hosting conversations on faith between atheists, agnostics and believers. In this documentary series, I'm going to tell the story of why New Atheism grew old and why secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. I'll be speaking to those who have championed and critiqued the atheist movement and the many new thinkers beginning a new conversation on the value of faith. Along the way, we'll meet some of those who have found themselves surprised by God as they've made the journey from atheism to Christianity. Welcome to the surprising rebirth of belief in God, episode one, the rise and fall of new atheism.
Just before we jump into the rest of today's show, one of the voices you'll hear on this podcast is friend of the show, Glenn Scrivener, a brilliant Christian communicator. Glenn has recently put together an online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, stimulating and assumes no prior knowledge. If you've been thinking about exploring faith for yourself or if you want something to share with your friends, 321 is just the thing. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are beautifully shot and animated. I found it a really engaging and practical way of connecting the big ideas in this podcast to our everyday life. I'm already thinking of people I can share it with. See for yourself at 321course.com JB. It's completely free. Just start a free account with your email and a password and you're in. There's no spam, no hidden costs. Go to 321course.com JB and discover life according to Jesus. We have free speech in this country, so I think they're as entitled to their view. If it gets people talking about God um, and creates a discussion, I'm fine with that. It will get people thinking about their life and, you know, all those things. Yeah, I think it's a positive thing. I think it could upset a few people, but then hopefully we live in a country of free speech. There is no God, probably. That's the message now travelling around Britain. 800 buses are carrying this poster and 1,000 more are being pasted up on London's underground network. It follows a poster campaign last summer by the Evangelical Christians which showed the URL of a website saying all non-Christians were going to hell. Well, this is the atheist bus campaign, a response from the secularists. In 2009, my own country, the UK, experienced its own high watermark of sceptical activism, the Atheist Bus Campaign, sponsored by the British Humanist Association. Here's the then-president, Polly Toynbee, and its chief backer, Richard Dawkins, smiling for the cameras at the launch. I know that you think probably on our bus slogan is a bit soft. On the other hand, I rather like yeah. its... Uh, I rather like it upbeat. I really do. Yeah. I come think round for to it. I, yeah, I, you I come do. Round to yeah. it. It's funny, um, and it gets people to talk about it. Um, and if we'd said there's definitely no God, we, you can't say that. You can't say there's definitely no, no Father Christmas. And, and, and so it gets people to think. The irony of the campaign was that the UK hardly needed reminding that there's probably no God. Church going had been in decline for decades and fewer people than ever registered Christian on the national census. Public response was mixed to the atheist bus campaign, but personally, as a person of faith, I felt rather thrilled the first time I saw a bus sail past me in London emblazoned with the words, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. As Oscar Wilde said, there's only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. And in secular Britain, God was being talked about again. But where had this newly zealous, almost evangelistic form of godlessness, already dubbed New Atheism, come from? Now, some very, very sketchy details reaching us here at Sky Centre. Important enough to bring to you, though, at this early stage, we believe that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Centre. The unthinkable happened today. The World Trade Centre, both towers gone, and we are all witnesses to it, and to some degrees, degree, we are all victims today, tonight. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Tonight I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Dr. Jana Harmon, a researcher on atheism and Christianity, says the September 11th attacks in 2001 were a catalyst for the movement. 9-11 kind of started it off as, as uh, revealing or showing or demonstrating religion as just a horrible thing that could do, um, you know, bad things to people, bad things to civilizations. They, they I think, rode on the coattails of that and and I think the culture was in a place of still 
thinking fairly rationally about things and being very convinced by these astute, very rhetoric, uh, rhetorically accomplished people. I mean, Christopher Hitchens was a brilliant, a brilliant thinker, and uh, he was very winsome and sar- in his sarcastic way, very convincing. Oxford University Professor of Science and Religion, Alistair McGrath, has been one of the key Christian academics responding to new atheism since it emerged. Now, Richard Dawkins and others have been arguing for years that religion was irrational and dangerous. Actually, people hadn't really paid all that much attention to him. But suddenly, these arguments seemed plausible, they seemed attractive, and actually they seemed deeply relevant given the crisis that people felt was engulfing the West. Someone or someone had to be blamed for 9-11, and in the white heat of anger directed against this outrage, Islamic religious fanaticism became shortened to religious fanaticism, and then simply to religion. Religion was the enemy of the West. There were, in fact, four key characters, the so-called four horsemen of the new atheism, who came to be seen as figureheads for the movement, responding to religious extremism. Along with biologist Richard Dawkins, journalist Christopher Hitchens and philosopher Daniel Dennett, there was the public intellectual Sam Harris. The rather obvious liability of religious certainty was was made... um extraordinarily clear uh, on that day. I mean, we were having people flying planes into our buildings for explicitly religious reasons. Um, But what was also made clear is that we were going to deny the religious rationale uh, because of our own attachment to our own religious myths. I mean, the only language we could find as a culture to comfort ourselves was to endorse our own God talk. Uh, So I, I suddenly saw faith playing both sides of the board in a, in a very dangerous game, where we as a nation, we were uh, consoling ourselves with our own religious certainties, you know, in the, very much in the language of, of Christian fundamentalism. It wasn't only religious fundamentalism that triggered the rise of new atheism. As blogger and journalist Bethel McGrew told me, there was a perfect storm of other factors too. So new atheism really caught several waves at once. It came out of uh, September 11th. It came out of Bush years. It came out of uh, a particular moment in the development of the internet. It was this this sort of exciting time in the internet when people were really finding each other for the first time and uh, had this idea that, you know, if I just argued for long enough with this other person who has a completely different worldview from me, then uh, surely he will see the reasonableness of, of my view. Jana Harmon agrees. So I think that the internet um, technology fed into it um, and gathered this community of like-minded brights and intellectuals of people uh, of whom they wanted to be associated with. It was just a, a movement that really, I think, was very strong, very compelling for a lot of people who didn't necessarily think through the arguments as much as got on the bandwagon. If if they are intelligent and they believe it and it sounds good to me, I think I'll believe it too. Um, so not that, that that atheists weren't all thinking about uh, deeply about their worldview and, and what they believed, but it definitely was a movement. Meanwhile, in the mid-2000s, a storm was also brewing over science, faith and education, spurred on by a legal challenge in the USA. The Kitzmiller versus Dover School Board area trial pitted evolution and intelligent design against each other in the courtroom. Regardless what side of the debate you're on, if you support intelligent design, you do so because you want to promote your view of God as the creator. If you oppose intelligent design, you do so because you don't want some teacher instructing or influencing your child's religious upbringing. Either way, everybody understood that intelligent design was a religious proposition, and we are absolutely thrilled 
that Judge Jones has seen through the smoke and mirrors used by design proponents and has ruled that intelligent design is not science but is, in fact, a particular religious view. And that trial fed into this narrative that they began to create, this narrative that kind of comes out of the Bush years where you have various conservative Christians in some places of political power. Um, And so the atheists are telling you that these Christianists are coming to take away your rights as an atheist. They're coming to take away your abortion rights. They want to police your sex life. Um, They want to take over the schools, take over politics, force atheists to live in fear and hiding. So these people are dangerous. That was the uh, that was the drumbeat. These are dangerous zealots, and they have to be stopped at all costs. So Dawkins saying, you know, mock them, ridicule them, anything, anything to drive them out of uh, their places of power in the public square. The four so-called horsemen of the new atheism, who came to be the figureheads of this movement, had each written their own best-selling anti-religious books, sparking a mini-publishing boom in the genre of atheist literature. US philosopher Daniel C. Dennett's Breaking the Spell sought to give an evolutionary explanation for religion. The one thing that I think is really dangerous in many religions is that it gives people a gold-plated excuse to stop thinking. To stop thinking. To stop thinking. To say, I don't have to think about that because my religion says this is right, this is wrong, it's as clear as that, it's black and white, I don't have to think about this anymore. It's just a matter of faith. The End of Faith and Letter to a Christian Nation by neuroscientist and public intellectual Sam Harris decried the irrationality of religion and its consequences. You see religion on a hundred fronts losing the argument with science. It's losing the argument ethically. It's going to, it will lose the argument spiritually. I mean, we will understand spiritual experience so well at some point at the level of the brain. And we'll understand it in a way that makes a mockery of this kind of de- denominational religion talk about Jesus and grace or about Buddha and magic powers. Journalist Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything was a characteristically blistering polemic on the evils of religion generally. He passed away in 2011 from esophageal cancer, but was generally recognised as the most rhetorically gifted of the new atheists in speech and debate. It is the desire that there be an unalterable, unchallengeable, tyrannical authority who can convict you of thought crime while you are asleep. Who can, can, who can subject you, who must indeed subject you, to a total surveillance around the clock, every waking and sleeping minute of your life, I say of your life, before you're born, and even worse, and where the real fun begins, after you're dead. <laughs> a celestial North Korea. <laughs> who wants this to be true? Richard Dawkins, an Oxford professor of biology who was arguably the leader of the Gang of Four, published the most popular of all the books, The God Delusion, which sold in the millions and was accompanied by a TV series and a book tour that saw the author speak to thousands of enthusiastic fans across the world. Speaking here in 2007, he laid out his hopes for the movement. We've heard a lot recently about the so-called new atheism. Is it pure wishful thinking to suggest that there is a new wave of reason sweeping across America, Britain, Europe, Australia, South America, even in places like the Middle East and Africa, where superstition and religious dogma have traditionally had a firm hold? The obvious litmus of our nouvelle vague is the unprecedented sales figures of atheistic books. There was no electoral committee to nominate these figures, yet all four horsemen saw themselves at the forefront of a new movement, whose central arguments could be summarised in three ways. Firstly, that religious belief was irrational, even delusional. 
Second, that religion was a force for evil. People and society in general would be better off without it. And third, that science and reason had proven that God almost certainly did not exist and that atheism was the true picture of reality. Of course, such arguments had been common among an older generation of atheists, but as Thomas Sheedy of Atheists for Liberty explains in this conversation with the Doubt Society channel, these leaders made atheism mainstream. They produced four books that swept the West. Um, they all, I think all of them were New York Times bestsellers, and they ended up rejuvenating these former organized atheist ent entities. It made atheism become more mainstream in the West. And so all these different organizations, 501c3 nonprofits like American Atheists, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, the Secular Student Alliance, the Foundation Beyond Belief, uh, numerous others, uh, they ended up getting millions upon millions of dollars in funding thanks to the efforts of these four gentlemen. And numerous other uh, intellectuals have, have popped up as well. It was a very interesting time. And there was a journalist in 2006 who called this phenomenon the new atheism. Yeah, so I think it's kind of like the, the sexier new version of old atheism, <laughs> you know, uh, as I understand it. Adam Coleman is the founder of True ID Apologetics, aimed at equipping the African-American community with answers to faith issues. Again, I got into apologetics around 2012. And so, that, I mean, when I got into it, new, new atheism was, you know, all the rage, if you will. You know, it was in, in full swing. And so uh, just having these these you know, verbaceous characters in the in the case of Hitchens or just kind of the, the curmudgeonly old intellectual in the case of, you know, then it, I mean, there's, it seemed like there was something for everybody in the atheist community. And they did a good job of getting, uh, kind of making atheism uh, sound biteable, if you will. You know, just these, these quick shots that, you know, whether it be memes or, or short videos, it was very eye-catching and, and attention-grabbing. And I, I think that they, again, to the credit, they did a good, good job of pushing uh, old and, and uh bad arguments you know, to, to a new audience, a new and younger audience, I should say. For young would-be sceptics coming of age in the mid-2000s and 2010s, the new atheism proponents represented a set of heroic-looking figures who were often idolised by their followers. Stephen Woodford runs the popular atheist YouTube channel Rationality Rules. It's something that has very much, in my early life, it defined me. Like, I've never felt closer to someone I've never met than... I do with Christopher Hitchens. I, I weeped when he died, and some of the words that he he gave still resonate with me. For example, he said, "Take the take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way." I think of that daily. I think it's such an important message. Of course, he's not the first to express it, but he did it in a powerful way that was relevant to me when I was a teenager. Um, now, as for what new atheism was and what it was trying to achieve. There's various assessments that you can have, but my assessment is it was the precipice of people saying enough with the religious and clerical bullying, as Christopher would have put it. We're done with living our lives according to what we consider to be fantasy. This isn't good enough. You can have your religion, but you're going to have it separate from throwing it into schools or forcing me to live according to your religion. Enough. Done. And part of being able to achieve that required, by my lights, mockery. It required a, a much more fierce tone. And so that's what you saw broadly, especially with Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and a bit of Sam Harris. Daniel Dennett was always quite soft. And some of the other names, you know, you've got a variant, a variety of how they approached the topic. But I think it was a, it was a political movement to essentially separate state institutions from religious institutions, at least in practice, even if it's not on paper. So that's how I see the movement. But New Atheism was more than just a political protest movement. It was marked by brash slogans and an unapologetic propensity to use ridicule as its weapon of warfare. And the internet was its primary method of getting the message out. Soon after YouTube launched in 2005, some of the most popular channels in its early years were outspoken atheists such as Cult of Dusty and The Amazing Atheist. We're not the ones who believe in ancient and ridiculous fairy tales based on no evidence whatsoever. We're not the ones that use our imaginary friend as an excuse to discriminate against gay people. We're not the ones impeding scientific advancements. We're not the ones trying to get fairy tales taught to our children in the classrooms. 
If anybody should be embarrassed of what they believe and have to hide it, it should be them, not us. There's no evidence of God. That's why I'm an atheist. Provide me evidence of God, I will cease to be a atheist. It's that Satan damn simple. In this interview from 2012, the year of the Reason Rally, the late Tim Keller, a pastor and author who engaged skeptics over many years in New York City, explains why he believed this feature of new atheism was both new and worrying. One bad thing about the new atheist books is they weren't just saying that religion is wrong. They were actually saying that even respect for religion was wrong and that we shouldn't even be, uh, be courteous and respectful to religious believers, but we really just need to get rid of it all. And boy, that's a, I think that's a, that's a recipe for uh, disaster. That, that certainly doesn't bring about civil discourse at all. Ricky Gervais was among a number of comedians who employed mockery in the cause of atheism. Um, you believe in one God, I assume? Uh, in three persons, but go ahead. Okay, so you believe, okay. So, but there, there are about 3,000 to choose from that have been, you know, people who believe in I've done some reading, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so basically, you believe in, you, you, you deny one less God than I do. You don't believe in 2,999 gods, and I don't believe in just one more. Right. Along with Gervais's stand-up routines ridiculing the Bible, other comedians were a feature of the movement. Eddie Izzard and Tim Minchin both lent their support to the Reason Rally. In the USA, Bill Maher released a documentary, Religious, Lampooning Religion. Memes, mockery and even outright offence became popular ways of engaging with religious ideas and people. Jana Harmon, author of Atheists Finding God, conducted her PhD research on adult conversion of atheists to Christianity and explains how commonplace ridicule was. You know, there was this culture of ridicule coming from the new atheists where you would not really entertain or um, a, a substantive argument on the other side because there was no argument in their perspective. There was nothing there other than fanciful thinking, superstition, delusion. And so there was a lot of dismissal and contempt um, that was uh, coming through not only the atheists, but actually through the words and the, and the perspectives of those whom I interviewed, uh, that they had a, it was, there was a very negative hue over Christianity during that time. I interviewed around 2014 to 2015 predominantly, and so, yes, the, the new atheist rhetoric was very fresh in the minds of many. At first, I would have, I definitely would have fallen into this category of, of mocking religious people. Stephen Woodford, a.k.a. Rationality Rules. One of the things that was being expressed is that, you know, Christians are believing in, you know, resurrections, in, in, in faith healing. Um, if you're a Catholic, you believe that the wafer turns into Jesus's body, etc., and one of the mockeries that came across was that Christians are mentally ill, like genuinely mentally ill. And I have to admit, me rather embarrassingly, that at a point, yeah, I would have considered that a fair assessment of the situation. I don't anymore, but that would be an example of where I think, you know, the mockery was there and, and by my lights it went too far. So yes, there was plenty of situations like that where it was pretty ferocious and unfair to religious people. A number of people did end up reconsidering their affiliation with New Atheism because of its aggressive tone. Alistair McGrath is a co-editor of a recent book, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. I asked him how effective ridicule was as an evangelistic strategy. I think initially it was very successful because it was rhetorically very highly charged. And, you know, in effect, particularly, uh, you know, teenagers find themselves suddenly being exposed to ridicule and humiliation in high schools. You know, in effect, you know, you, 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 you believe a delusion. You know, you, you are sort of covert terrorist. You are an intrinsically violent person. You know, wise up, grow up. And that was actually very, very difficult for people of a susceptible age to cope with. I think that's one of the things New Atheism really has to answer for. But I think people are drawn towards simple statements of faith. 
And this is a statement of faith. I have to be absolutely clear. It's not right and it's a gross misrepresentation, but a lot of people find it to be a very convenient misrepresentation. And that explains, I think, why so many people bought into this, at least to begin with. Did you know this podcast is also a book? The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again is available now. Historian Tom Holland says Justin has had a ringside seat watching the great debates on religion and reports on them with learning, subtlety and grace. Now, don't tell anyone, but you'll actually get the first chapter free in your email inbox if you subscribe to my newsletter. Or, if you want to just go ahead and order, signed editions are available from my website. Or, even better, you'll get both my books personally signed when you become a gold supporter of this podcast. So for the newsletter, the book, or to support, check the links in the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. Christians and people of faith certainly had their criticisms – But not all non-believers were fans of this newly belligerent and contemptuous form of atheism either. Unbelievable, the discussion show I hosted for over 17 years, began in the early days of new atheism, and I enjoyed hosting lively debates with a range of thinkers and personalities, many from among the new atheist tribe. But increasingly, as time went on, I would encounter non-Christian guests who preferred to distance themselves from the movement. I'm not a Richard Dawkins type of atheist, became a surprisingly frequent comment. Even at an early stage in 2006, the nature of the movement was scrutinised by Gary Wolfe in an article for Wired magazine, where he interviewed the leaders of the movement and apparently even introduced the term new atheism for the first time. But Alistair McGrath says the journalist did much more than just coin a phrase. Um, Gary Wolf, I think, summarised what for him were the two leading features of this new approach to atheism. Number one, it was very aggressive, very slogan-driven, and surprisingly um, inattentive to questions of evidence and argument. Uh, really, it was sloganising, you know, religious people are fools, um, God's a delusion. It was an assertion of um, ideas, often with a very bullying rhetoric. You know, unless you're a complete idiot, you'll see atheism is obviously right, but of course religious people are idiots, so... What do you expect? And linked with this is a kind of demonization of religious people, not as a critique of religious ideas. In effect, saying religious people are idiots or fools or uh, mentally ill, one of Richard Dawkins' less um, less well-judged statements, I have to say. So that's one area. It, it in effect, suddenly made atheism see um, invulnerable. This is the only option-thinking person. And linked with that is a second feature, which is absolute tone of certainty. This is obviously right. You need to think about this. Just relax. This is a right. Buy into it. And in fact, Gary Wolfe, who wrote the article, said, look, <laughs> these guys are really fundamentalists. They're just asserting their beliefs and not actually really um, giving people reason to think they might be right. So it's a very interesting um, uh, movement, which in effect for a while held a high ground because the media found it very, very exciting and, of course, very, very novel, which, of course, was the intention of the slogan of New Atheism. But I think as time has passed, people have begun to rethink this in quite a big way. You also make the point in your opening to the book, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, that the new atheism started to look suspiciously religious in some ways. Do you want to just explain how that manifested? Well, this is one of the most interesting things about the new atheism. I mean, quite early on, I made the point, look, actually, really, you guys are just giving us a different faith system. And that they will go, oh, no, 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 we're, we're rejecting faith. And I'd say, well, then prove your beliefs. Oh, we can't do that. No, no. Uh, but they're right. And and the point is that they're just asserting beliefs, hoping we'll accept them. It's about, I believe this is right, but I have actually shown this right. So the point I was making is these guys are really bringing home to everyone that atheism is a kind of faith, which didn't go down very well with them, but everybody else saw the point. But the real points that emerged were actually more significant. They're much more to do with... Um, Uh, the question of the way in which religions behave. And certainly, the religions that, for example, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens want to critique are those that say, we have an infallible text and we have infallible people who can tell us what is right. Uh, I, I, I and many others, I have to say, 
made the point that actually new atheism sounded awfully like infallible prophets saying this is the way things really are, trust me. And then books like The God Delusion or God is Not Great, you know, both being treated as infallible by their readers. I remember once um, I went to speak at the bookstore in Oxford and the previous week they'd had Richard Dawkins in to promote his um, God Delusion and the bookstore manager said to me, Alistair, it was really interesting. When people left that meeting, they were clutching this book to their to their breasts as if it was some kind of talisman that warded off evil or something. It was astonishing. The increasingly religious aspect of atheism has been noted by others too. Historian Tom Holland has frequently spoken and written about the Christian origins of many aspects of Western culture and says that the evangelistic impetus of new atheism was no different. The ambition of modern atheists is uh, it's an evangelical one. It's they have they have good news to preach and the good news is that if you um if you overthrow the idols of superstition, if you banish superstition, if you bring people who have walked in darkness into light, then they will be better people. They will be morally better people. They will live better lives. And so in a sense, you could see the entire history of Christianity going back even before the birth of Christ as being an expression of the conviction that idolatry, once it is overthrown, will bring people into the light. And it's in that sense, I think, that that contemporary atheism, you know, wonderfully bearing in mind that Richard Dawkins is one of its chief evangelists, you know, that is the course of evolution. That is where the evolution has led. It's my view that new atheism did inadvertently stumble into the mould of a religious cult itself. This was, after all, much more than merely disbelief in God. There were the high priests, the four horsemen, and the sacred texts they had written. Science, arguably, was their object of worship, the great hope for humanity's future. And naturalism, the belief that all that exists can be explained by matter in motion and the blind forces of nature, was their creed. They gathered regularly to celebrate their beliefs, to praise the wonder of science, and to hear their leaders preach against those who believed another gospel. And atheists who questioned the strict materialist orthodoxy or even lost their faith altogether were heretics and rounded on with unswerving zeal. But like all religions, new atheism would become subject to fallouts, rifts and splits. We'll hear more about that in the next episode of this series. For now, returning to my conversation with Alistair McGrath, he explains why the tone and quasi-religious nature of new atheism began to create problems even among its adherents. I think there's one of the real problems that, in effect, uh, as ex-New Atheists are pointed out, uh, P.Z. Myers is a very good example of this, you know, just says, look, this where everything went wrong. One of the things was, that in effect, it almost became impossible within the New Atheism movement to critique either its leading representatives or its leading texts, because to to do so was to be seen as a kind of apostasy or, or critique of the, the movement's great leaders, a bit like uh, you know, a situation in North Korea. And that, I think, is really important because, in effect, um, it, it's morphing into something that's more than just a kind of critique of religion. It's an alternative version of religion which demands obedience, compliance, and, uh, in effect, submitting yourself to the wisdom of certain sages who, I have to say, turn out to be decidedly fallible. As you watched that from the sidelines and sometimes interacted with some of these folks, what what were the sort of um, sense you were getting from your peers, your academic peers, who perhaps weren't so invested in that movement but didn't necessarily call themselves Christians? Did, were they were they cheering them on? Were they a bit critical of the movement itself? Well, I I didn't get very involved in this. I have to say, although I did I did do some things, but my my concern was that. Um, the level of argumentation was not scholarly or academic or even evidence-based. It was simply sloganizing. I felt I, I'm not very good at that, so I won't, don't really want to get involved. But certainly my atheist friends at Oxford University were, were really embarrassed. They'd look, um, please don't judge us by this sort of nonsense. You know, this, this is, they are not speaking in our name. There's a real reaction against it. Which is why, interestingly, the new atheism seems to have had its impact mostly 
uh, outside the academic world. It's very interesting to observe um, where it had impact. And the academic world on the whole just felt this is utterly simplistic um, and doesn't really deserve serious attention. Perhaps new atheism ultimately overplayed its hand. Journalist Ben Sixsmith thinks so. The new atheism tapped into a couple of slightly silly assumptions, one of which was that we were living in a time where religion was this kind of icon which must not be questioned, which granted might be true if you live in small town Texas, but if you live in middle England was just frankly absurd. But it made a lot of young and uh, mentally young people feel very good to imagine that they were kind of something akin to Solzhenitsyn challenging communism in the 20th century to be you know, insulting the Archbishop of Canterbury about his ridiculous beliefs. And I think after the new atheism flurry, people realized kind of how silly that was. And I think that's another reason why there was a backlash against it, because people thought, you know, that was quite absurd of me. It's like when a teenager looks at a photo of themselves age 14 and like, what on earth was I doing? If you actually were an American Christian living through those years, then you knew how ridiculous this narrative actually was. Bethel McGrew agrees. Um, you know, you, you knew how ridiculous it was for Harris to call his book a letter to a Christian nation. Um, America really wasn't that Christian of a nation, but it didn't matter because people bought it uh, and it made young atheists feel like the brilliant underdog heroes of their own story. So, it, you know, it was really their own kind of oppressor-oppressed narrative where Christians were the oppressor or religious people in general were the oppressor and atheists were the oppressed. And that's what, uh, that's what made it sell so well in those early years. Ultimately, beyond the narratives and ridicule and dogmatism that often characterise the movement, New Atheism sold itself as being the only option for a thinking person. But as someone who was engaging regularly through my discussion show Unbelievable with some of the intellectual thought leaders of the movement, I also came to believe they overplayed the claims to their own intellectual prowess. It's not that there was nothing to the arguments. After all, not all Christians did have good reasons for believing in God. But I found that a compelling case for God could be made nonetheless. The charge that religious belief was delusional never seemed to make sense to me. Likewise, I could see how religion could often be a force for evil and oppression. But I also saw that that was simply true of many human institutions, and religion could equally be a force for great good. And as I met scientists on both sides of the atheist and Christian divide, I realised that science and God weren't in opposition to each other. Rather, it was two worldviews that were in conflict, naturalism and theism. What I was glad for was that New Atheism had kindled a lively debate on all these questions. But as Adam Coleman reflects, the popular level New Atheist arguments weren't that impressive in the end. Yeah, just as I was getting into apologetics, I would find myself in, you know, of course, chat forum, Facebook, and you know, whatever it may be. I don't even know if Twitter was a thing at that time. But definitely Facebook, you know, getting arguments and encountering the same arguments over and over again with the atheists that I would encounter, but I did, I couldn't figure out exactly where like the source was, like, where's the mother atheist mothership where all these, you know, bad arguments are coming from. And so as I got more into studying apologetics and just watching some of the William Lane Craig debates, you know, thinking about somebody like Lawrence Krauss, I was like, ah, you know, now I see where all these folks online are, are getting this stuff from. And then what's interesting is, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but in the African-American context, uh, atheism really isn't a thing as much like that, you know, it's, it's becoming something, uh, it's kind of latent, so to speak, but it's, uh, uh, historically it's kind of been taboo in the African-American uh, community. Nevertheless, what I was starting to see is that you had people of other worldviews, uh, whether it be Hebrewism, Kemeticism, uh, various forms of African spirituality, cherry picking arguments from the Richard Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss's of the world and then repurposing it for their own. So I was seeing more of that, uh, in my context. Another young African-American apologist, John McRae, began responding to atheist memes with his brand of humour on his popular YouTube channel, What Do You Meme? He recalls reading The God Delusion for the first time. 
Yeah, I remember reading through the book, but this was also after I already took philosophy of religion. So I was fresh in mind with a lot of the arguments for God's existence. So I had an awareness that like he wasn't fully understanding the arguments because in the class we um, not only studied the arguments, but we studied like a lot of the objections to it and they didn't take a side, you know, but we went through the objections and stuff. And I realized that he had fundamental misunderstandings of the arguments then, but I thought that his book was still emotionally persuasive. Um, because it even started making me think, like, could I be missing this? Like, am I I'm missing something here? I, I guess he was pretty compelling emotionally, which I think would make some people really, you know, take a second look at a second guess at their faith. Jana Harmon says that, ironically, the new atheists often dealt more in emotion than logic. It, it, it's interesting because especially when you would see debate, um, it seemed to me oftentimes that, that the substance was on the side of the Christian, but the rhetoric was on the side of the of the, the, the new atheist. And that that seemed to be much more convincing, the, the style, the manner, rather than the substance. Not that there wasn't any substance, but it seemed to be lacking as for me, as compared to what was found if you looked fairly and deeply at the issues at hand. Meanwhile, a number of academics, church leaders and theologians such as Oxford professors John Lennox and Keith Ward were responding to the new atheism with their own publications. Tim Keller's best-selling book, The Reason for God, established his reputation as an international Christian thinker. In this archive interview, he explains why he was surprised by a philosophical naivety to the new atheist approach. Um, the other thing that's weird about the new atheist was most people in the last 30 years came to understand that knowledge is perspectival. We seem to move away from this idea that you can have this objective view from nowhere, you know, the old enlightenment, you know, scientism. And uh, I've talked to a number of philosophers who are not Christian believers, who are themselves atheists, actually, who told me it seems like all the guys who wrote the New Atheist books just refused to take Philosophy 101. They just did not listen to what's happened in the last 40 years about, uh, about knowledge. They're just so sure that if you can't prove something, then we don't have to believe it. And um, so there's a kind of epistemological naivete about the books. Another celebrated author from the UK who wrote a response was Francis Spufford, whose book Unapologetic took an eloquent, if sometimes sweary, alternative approach to the movement, arguing that Christianity made surprising emotional sense of human beings. There was just this basic error in the case against religion that was being made and that it constantly treated it as, as a as an argument out of out of philosophy or or out of science it was it was about the existence of god as i've said elsewhere surely his most boring characteristic um where, whereas I mean, the people do not become or stay religious believers because they they are they are possessed of an abstract conviction about the existence of god they are they are christians or jews or muslims because they they have a strong need for the the, the the love of God and the mercy of God and because they feel that they're getting it. Um, it's an emotional thing. It's not really an argument about cosmology. And and though the arguments from cosmology or, or from evolutionary biology going, actually, Mr. Dawkins, that doesn't follow. Sorry, Professor Dawkins, that doesn't follow, um, were good and necessary. I didn't think that they actually dealt with the fundamental problem, which is that he was having the wrong argument. He kept pulling religion away and trying to treat it as kind of some sort of dodgy, dodgy, inferior grade science. Yeah. Um, and it isn't. It's something else. My wife and I wrote a book called The Dawkins Delusion, and it was a very short response to Richard Dawkins. The reason it's so short is because his book is so academically insignificant that it's actually very difficult to get your teeth into what he's saying. Alistair McGrath also responded with The Dawkins Delusion. Our little book went on to be an international bestseller. And Michael Roos, a leading atheist philosopher, and kind of commended it, saying, look, this, Dawkins is an embarrassment to atheism. Michael Roos and I have been friends ever since. We've talked a lot about these things, and we have some very intelligent conversations. And he continues to make it clear that these guys are kind of weirdos. They're, they're on the fringes of um, uh, academic atheist culture. And that, that does need to be said, I think. 
But the problem is the real debate was happening at the cultural, not the academic level. And that's why I think it was so important that so many people began to emerge who were willing to take on Richard Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens and say, look, this is simply nonsense. This is not what we believe. Your arguments simply do not make the points that you think they do. And also, the only way in which you're able to make these points is by simplistic misrepresentation of alternative positions. I think that's a very important point. In my books, one of the points I make again and again and again is that Richard Dawkins and his colleagues use criteria to judge religion that they decline to apply to their own beliefs. In other words, there's a gross asymmetry in terms of the evidential basis of beliefs. And if you apply the kind of criteria they apply to religious people, to their own beliefs, you shouldn't be holding these. Now, do you remember the adverts on London buses which declared, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life? Well, there are buses driving around Oxford now adorned with the slogan, there's probably no Dawkins, now stop worrying and enjoy October the 25th at the Sheldonian Theatre. The well-known biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins is being teased because he won't debate with William Lane Craig, an American philosopher and prominent Christian apologist. Dr Craig is a theologian and Christian apologist. Now, that means he aims to present a rational basis for the Christian faith, defend the faith against objections and expose the perceived flaws of other world views. Why does, why does your event need the likes of Richard Dawkins, then? Well, frankly, Richard Dawkins has garnered tremendous notoriety for his claims that belief in God is a delusion. And I want to call him intellectually on the carpet for this. I think he needs to be prepared to defend those claims because I think that the arguments he gives in his book against uh, God are really quite fallacious. We began today's episode hearing about the Atheist Bus Campaign, but in 2011 I was involved in helping to organise a different, rather tongue-in-cheek bus campaign stating, there's probably no Dawkins, challenging the biologist to debate one of the world's most notable intellectual defenders of God's existence, the philosopher William Lane Craig. An invitation had been issued for the event at the Sheldonian Theatre at Oxford University, the biologist's own home turf. The campaign had even been backed by Daniel Kame, an atheist philosophy lecturer at the university, who had written an open letter published in the Daily Telegraph accusing Dawkins of cowardice for taking aim at easy targets in religious circles while running away from Christianity's most serious intellectual advocates. The evening finally arrived. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and can I warmly welcome you to the Sheldonian Theatre this evening uh, for the talk that we're just about to hear, Is God a Delusion? Uh, my name's Robbie Strachan. Uh, I'm the president of the Christian Union here at Oxford University. And it is a delight to be joined this evening by William Lane Craig, um, who will just be, in a moment, giving a lecture in response to Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Now, it would have been great to be able to welcome Professor Richard Dawkins here this evening for public debate. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to make it. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is instead a great privilege to be joined by Professor Peter Millikan, who is the Gilbert Ryle Fellow and Professor of Philosophy at Hartford College, Oxford. He's going to be chairing uh, the evening, and I really hope that you enjoy the evening this evening. I was part of the audience that night, and in the end, Craig enjoyed a spirited discussion with a panel of agnostic and atheist thinkers who were willing to engage him. But a symbolic empty chair was left on the stage to note the absence of Richard Dawkins. But what was the story behind the empty chair at the Sheldonian Theatre? One of the people helping to organise the event was a young agnostic man called Peter Byram. Today, Peter and I are good friends, and I sat down to chat with him about his early experience of becoming invested in the writings and online arguments of the new atheists as a university student. I asked him how he thought the four horsemen fared in debate with Christians. The first people I saw them debating uh, were useless, really, really 
pathetic and they came out on top the new atheists did they they looked like they were speaking the most sense but eventually that's when i discovered people like john lennox and then especially william lane craig um because um those were christian apologists who um they actually had evidence and argument um william lane craig especially i think made a very big impression um because he would he would spell the arguments out very clearly mm-hmm. um you know he'd outline the logic of the arguments and explain very clearly what the evidence was backing up particular steps so i actually encountered um christian apologists who were rising to the challenge and offering evidence and argument and that at least needed factoring in yeah but at the same time you weren't necessarily seeing the key atheist voices engaging with the best Christian arguments and spokespeople? No, um, the William Lane Craig question was the biggest one. Mm. Um, I, I, I was thinking surely Dawkins needs to engage with William Lane Craig. Dawkins is the biggest name of all the atheists and he had engaged the most with the arguments for God's existence and the God delusion and he he has his own argument, a whole chapter mm. about why God almost certainly does not exist. So it made sense to think surely this is what Dawkins would be looking for. But then it just turned out he wasn't, Mm. he was running away from it completely. And there were a number of invitations that he received. I'd been made aware that in 2007 and even 2008, there were invitations sent to Dawkins. And he'd responded by saying, you know, I don't know who William Lane Craig is. That might look good on his CV and not on mine. I only debate bishops and that kind of stuff. So I was aware of this around 2009. And in November 2009, there was a debate, um, a panel debate um, in Berkshire. And I wanted to go and go along to it. And I was sat there watching it. And I was thinking this could be my chance to actually ask Dawkins about why he kept refusing to engage with William Lane Craig. I mean, this isn't just having a, a debate. This is any kind of dialogue or anything in print. And I almost didn't ask the question because I thought it might be a bit off topic. But then um, Lord Reverend Richard Harris, he was speaking on the panel and he said, one of the characteristics of fundamentalism is that you always ignore the strongest arguments from the opposition and you focus on the weakest one. And I thought, OK, I think I've got Lord Harry's permission to ask this question. Professor Dawkins, you are arguably the world's leading apologist for atheism. And you have been invited on several occasions by arguably the world's leading Christian academic apologist, Dr. William Lane Craig, to engage in debate. I would like to know why this is not an example of the new atheist doing what Lord Harris has described as avoiding the strongest possible arguments from the opposition. Okay, I think that's a very straight question. Over here. I have always said when invited to do debates that I will be happy to debate a bishop, a cardinal, pope, an archbishop. Indeed, I have done both, um, but that I don't take on creationists and I don't take on people whose only claim to fame is that they are professional debaters. They've got to have something more than that. I'm busy. And, the, and then, of course, you know, all the Dawkins fans and the audience were clapping and I wasn't clapping because uh, I thought, hang on a minute. No, 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 no. That, that does not make sense. You know, you, you, he's debated people who were not bishops. William Lane Craig is not a creationist. He doesn't have any problem theologically with um, evolution. Uh, you know, he believes in the 13.7 billion year old age of the universe. And he'd have to, given that the Kalam cosmological argument appeals to the Big Bang. And calling him a professional debater, well, that's ignoring all of his credentials as a professional philosopher. I remember you making the point, um, actually, on your show that... um uh, sat next to Dawkins was A.C. Grayling, who is a professional philosopher, and um, and William Lane Craig's credentials aren't that different. He is publishing. Uh, indeed, I think the atheist philosopher Quentin Smith is on record as having said that William Lane Craig's Kalam cosmological argument is the most studied across the philosophy of religion uh, journals in contemporary Western philog- uh, religion. It's one of the most engaged with. So, yeah, that that really just looked like... It, well, it, it just... I... I this, uh, this list of different excuses from Dawkins was growing. You'll hear more of Peter Byram's story in a future episode of The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. You can also read it in the recently released book, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. Through hosting a debate show on the evidence for God and Christianity, I had the good fortune to have a ringside seat to see the rise of new atheism. But I have to say, the sight of that empty chair in the Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford stayed with me. It increasingly stood for something else in my mind, 
the emptiness of the New Atheist Project as a meaningful movement. It had declared belief in God a delusion, but what had it erected in its place, as the architects of the movement were about to discover? Without proper foundations, even the most glittering of edifices will crumble under its own weight. You've been listening to The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, telling the story of how new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. This podcast series is also a book. You can read the first chapter for free when you join my newsletter at justinbriarly.com, where you can also order the book or get a signed copy. Patreon supporters also get early access to new episodes of the podcast plus bonus content. That's justinbriarly.com. Next time. I was a single woman, you know, in a foreign country at 4 a.m. in a hotel elevator with you, just you, and I don't invite me back to your hotel room. How Elevatorgate sparked the unravelling of the new atheist movement. Today's episode was a production of Think Faith in partnership with Genexis and support from the Jerusalem Trust and Christian Evidence Society. Editing assistance by Isaac Simmons, music by Epidemic Sound. You can find links to the book and all our featured guests with the show notes. Finally, please do subscribe to this podcast, rate and review us too. It really helps others to discover this new documentary series. Plus, you can get the next episode a week early when you support at justinbriarly.com. The link is with today's show. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Just before I let you go, I had this lovely review from Chrissy saying, so good. I've literally consumed this podcast in three days. I've sent it to all my friends from various backgrounds. I pray you guys continue the amazing work and keep those episodes coming. Leaving a review like Chrissy really helps others to discover the show. But if you'd really like to help me keep those episodes coming, why not consider supporting the show or buying the book that this podcast is based on? The links are with today's show or visit justinbriley.com. See you at the next episode.